0: Now, although age and also male gender are very important, it's the comorbidities that do have a bit of a multiplier effect.
1: I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the Epidemiology 101 update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objective is to discuss immunology and virology as they pertain to COVID-19 transmission, disease course, and potential routes for treatment. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thank you and welcome back, Dr. Allwater.
0: Thank you, Faith. We've had the pandemic coronavirus as part of our lives now for many months. And we've learned a fair amount still, though, with many barriers and things to learn. But as we think about the COVID-19 illness, for many people, it's minimal uh, to having no symptoms. But for those that are ill, about 80% uh, have this mild disease. And it really is no different than most uh, upper respiratory tract viral infections that might have influenza-like features. However, for about uh, 20% of people, it's more severe and and can land people into uh, emergency rooms or hospitals. But then for a smaller percentage that does vary based on comorbidities and age, it's really this uh, phase that often is happening just as the immune system kicks up to clear the virus after the first week of illness where There's intense inflammatory phases uh, that uh, seem to develop problems with worsening oxygenation, multi-organ system problems, hypotension, uh, that can even proceed to lung injury, especially in people needing mechanical ventilation, so uh, ARDS-like features. So the disease is very interesting and, indeed, complex because how we approach it depends on how ill someone is and also where we think they are in their phase of the infectious illness and immune responses. So if we think about just the basics of this uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, early on, there's uh, most activity in the airways, and you get Typical responses with uh, T cells and macrophages as an effort to clear the infection and higher interferon levels and so on. That for so many people handles the infection as it would if it was parainfluenza, influenza, and so on. However, for people with uh, predilections, uh, the severe stages tend to mount a greater activation of uh, your immune cells that then trigger what was commonly referred to as a cytokine storm, but certainly much higher inflammatory molecules, including interleukin-6 and others that activate cells and also uh, make not only lungs more fraught with problems with oxygen diffusion or even lung injury, but also we know blood vessels uh, get stickier. And indeed, if you're ill enough to be in the many patients are prone to uh, developing clots uh, if they're not on uh, preventative anticoagulation. So although... The virus has been with us for a time. It has not stood still, and this is a paradigm true uh, within infectious diseases, whether you're a bacteria, a fungus, but certainly for a virus, they do mutate, especially when so many people are infected, and there's for some difficulties in clearing the virus. The original strain, uh, which was called a D614, really has disappeared uh, by the spring of 2020 and replaced with the this G614 variant, which looked like it increased the amount of virus shed in the respiratory tract. And so with higher viral loads, it was thought to be perhaps one mechanism. The virus uh, through summer times continued to be problematic and easier to transmit with higher viral respiratory loads. But in the fall in the United Kingdom, where uh, there was routine sequencing of viruses, there was a variant which has now been called B117 that was identified that seemed to cause great distress in central England, around London, in the south and east that then spread throughout the country, prompting new lockdowns in the fall. And this viral variant, which seems to have some changes in the spike protein, which is responsible for binding to the ACE2 receptor on cells, is thought to help facilitate that binding and also increase transmissibility uh, by perhaps 50%, over earlier strains. So this has already the predominant strain in the United Kingdom and has been identified in many states and uh, what seems to be a high proportion in the United States. This is the first viral variance, and uh, the United States effort at gene uh, sequencing viral isolates is really in early phases, uh, and it is quite possible we have lots of our own homegrown viral variants but two others the one on the bottom row the B1351 was first identified in South Africa and this uh, particular strain is important because we know that the monoclonal antibody uh, bamlanivimab and even the Regeneron monoclonal cocktail don't work well against it and the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, which is not yet used in the United States, but it has uh, been employed in the United Kingdom and in other countries such as South Africa, does not work well against this and has recently been pulled for from administration, for example, in South Africa, where this strain is indeed the predominant strain. There is another one which was first identified in Japan from uh, people that had been in Brazil that has this E484K mutation. And this, again, uh, is one that is causing some worry because of reduced uh, vaccine impact uh, by some. Although, importantly, the mRNA vaccines, such as the Moderna and the Pfizer, still seem to uh, work sufficiently well against these variants. But this is a situation that's being looked quite closely. But as we step back and say, why has this virus been so successful? It's really because of two features. The first is that this virus is already present in the respiratory tract before any symptoms and at rather high levels so that people may be just speaking, perhaps an occasional cough, and can transmit the virus. The second is that even after the onset of symptoms, people can be infectious for the first one, two, or three days before they really get seriously ill so they're still at home and infecting people, perhaps in households. And this particular graph shows that people may have a sufficient level of infectious virus, even at uh, perhaps day two or three before the onset of symptoms, and then often carry through, as you can see by a, a red line, which isn't an absolute, but gives you a general sense that based on the PCR cycle threshold, the higher you go, the less virus is present. So uh, generally when people are in the upper 30s, they're not finding infectious virus, but it gives you an idea that this particular virus could have a, a 12 to 14 day period that people are capable of being infectious. And so that's why you, you're aware of this 14 day quarantine to give a little bit of a cushion uh, and avoid transmission. So where are infections being acquired? And as I mentioned, where most are being acquired are at home because uh, people may not be aware they're infected. People are not wearing masks generally when they're in their home environment Or certainly in uh, congregate living. So this is where most are occurring. But of course, a lot of attention was paid early on with super spreader events, and those have thankfully generally declined with increased awareness and social mitigation. But of course, we're still continuing to travel, but on a limited basis and perhaps with testing. So there's still quite a possibility for spread, especially of these variants, although many countries are at the moment hitting the pause button yet again in allowing uh, travel, or certainly are requiring testing before and quarantine if you're traveling internationally. The, the pandemic coronavirus, which grabbed the world's attention in February and March of 2020, as you can see, the number of cases relatively small compared to what was uh, handled really in the United States in the third wave uh, starting in the fall and of course exacerbated by Thanksgiving and December holidays. Probably as those holidays have passed, the numbers of infections have declined. And of course, there may be some impact from just numbers of people who have been infected to date, as well as just the beginnings of the effect and impact of immunizations. But it's important to reflect on the disease burden, even though there has been great attention to daily uh, case numbers and deaths it's likely that these illnesses are not fully reported. Best estimates are that only half of COVID hospitalizations are being reported and perhaps uh, just under a quarter of symptomatic illnesses and total infections. So the burden may be much more. uh, That's the bad news. The good news is it does mean that probably more people have been infected and don't know it and therefore may have Immune responses that would give them protection, at least for now, and help in some way decrease pandemic numbers. Uh, there's also a sense that many people who have behaviors or were not interested in doing a social mitigation, such as mask wear and so on, have already become infected. So the people that were not hewing to recommendations have already been infected. So that supply of people has been diminishing over time. But What we do know very clearly for all comers is the age gradient, and the age gradient is probably the most significant in that once you get to uh, ages over 65, your risk for severe disease is significant, as you can see in the bar graphs. Uh, with hospitalizations. Youngsters, especially elementary school, uh, do not develop infections at any great rate and also less so for adolescents. But it does appear that most of the current transmission is being spread by young adults, adolescents at this stage. So that, that is a group that may not be quite as participatory in social mitigation and uh, are spreading most infections to others. As to who is really at highest risk, on the left-hand column are the ones that the Centers for Disease Control have said are clear increased risks for developing severe COVID-19 or death. And many of these uh, are very similar to what you would see with influenza. Uh, So there's really no difference. I would say obesity is an important factor. And here it's solid organ transplantation. Now there's more limited data on the right-hand side of the screen for conditions that possibly are posing an increased risk but are not in the left-hand category. And importantly, that includes just being overweight with a BMI of 25 to 30 and a few other conditions that might not make it immediately on the list of influenza risk factors that we're generally reasonably familiar with. Now, although age and also male gender are very important, it's the comorbidities that do have a bit of a multiplier effect. And I think many people looking at this field feel that obesity is one of the items that sort of hangs this all together. As if you're obese, you're often also at risk for diabetes and hypertension and chronic renal disease, and so on, but you have an idea that any one of these uh, is a significant multiplier, and then if you have two or three or more of these, and and the list uh, is listed below with the asterisks, gives you an idea that independent of age alone, uh, having these conditions does also place people at risk. Lastly, there's been attention that I think is well-deserved that certain populations are are more prone to developing COVID-19, to developing severe disease requiring hospitalization or dying of the infection. And uh, these appear to be not just racial and ethnic reasons alone, there's likely multiple reasons that could do to barriers to care as well as socioeconomic factors. But you can see on the bottom line of death that Latinx, also African-American or Native Americans are all quite a bit prone to increased risks of dying, also hospitalization. And I think what's also important, although we say the age gradient is important and that uh, the highest risk of death is if you're over 85, interestingly, those are uh, predominantly Caucasians And so for many people that are of color, their risk of death is at younger ages because they may not be living as long. So if you look at the 65 plus group, that's really where most of the deaths of minority populations rest. So I believe this is one of the very sound reasons to try to address vaccine hesitancy and also be certain people are seeking out care early in disease and uh, available interventions uh, for people in these higher risk groups. Now, the good news is compared to uh, the spring of 2020, when at least here in the New York City hospitals um, reported on this slide, the mortality rate was over 25% in the United Kingdom, it was 40% at our hospital in Baltimore it was also in this same range. By the summertime, it fell to 7%. Indeed, at Johns Hopkins, we're often month to month in a 5 to 7% mortality rate, substantially better than what we saw early in the pandemic. And I think the reasons for this are several. We are seeing a shift to younger patients as older patients are taking more care. That social mitigation may be lowering how much virus you're being exposed to, obviously. We also have much greater experience in caring for patients, especially our pulmonary and critical care colleagues knowing how to uh, help avoid ventilation and if you are ventilated uh, with better management. The only medication that we feel truly has made an impact on mortality so far is dexamethasone, but no doubt uh, the combination of different approaches are making some impact, although it may not yet be identified by trials. So in closing with this primer, this is clearly a highly successful virus because it can infect many people and you don't know they're ill. The virus is much easier to transmit than influenza. And now we are facing some viral variants that may even be easier to transmit. And although uh, numbers go up and down, I think this is something that's being viewed very carefully on so many fronts. We went over the risk factors for severe COVID-19 and death. And there are many factors, and it's important that uh, people that might fall in these groups are aware to seek medical care early and or avail themselves of vaccines that might prevent uh, such problems. And I think certainly in the United States with the Biden administration, many of these factors are driving how when vaccine supply becomes sufficient that there'll be targets appropriately to get as many people as possible in these high-risk groups sufficient. So, I hope that was helpful background. Uh, It's a virus that continues to challenge us and also uh, produce changes. So, thank you so much for listening and uh, staying up to date on COVID 19.
1: If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit COVID 19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.